Welcome to Ed Ideas, relevant conversations for Christian education. As image bearers of God, we have been created to actually carry out this work of cultivation, unpacking, unfurling, so that making is how we be human. Anytime culture is going through transition and there's significant change, you can either look at it as, hey, this is the worst thing ever, or what an opportunity. We know that all adolescents are asking some really direction-setting questions in their life. The very first thing said about us in the Hebrew Scriptures is not that we are bad, that we are dirty, that we are sinful, that we are shameful, that we are anything. The very first thing said about us is we bear the image of God. Welcome to Ed Ideas. This is Brandon Tatum. and Today we have Andrew Root from the Museum of the Bible Stage at the NCSA conference. I hope you enjoy faith formation in a secular age. Uh, Thank you all, it's wonderful to be with you. So what I wanna do with my time is really just try to answer one big why question. And the why question is, why are young people leaving the church? So here's the answer, I'm just gonna give you the answer right from the top. The reason I think young people are leaving the church is because of the secular. So thank you all very much, it's been nice to be with you. Tip your waiter. Um, yeah, there. Somebody, somebody wants some free time. No, so the problem with saying that the reason that young people are leaving is because of the secular is that the secular is a very difficult word to get your arms around. I mean, we all kind of have a sense of what that is, but probably if I gave you time to talk around your tables, there'd be a lot of different definitions of what we mean by the secular. So another way to say this is that the secular is a very multivalent word. So to get a handle on what we really mean and what forces might be pushing young people out of the church, we need to unfold this word a little bit. So let me do that for us. So let's take a step back and think about a world, if we could, before the secular. We could call this secular zero. Now it's very hard to, to, for us to get our minds around a time where there could be no secular, but it was really true. If you were to get to a time machine, which I don't think the museum has yet, but they're working on, if you could get in a time machine and go back six, 700 years, and go to continental Europe, you would find a world without the secular. Now, of course, people in that age knew that there was a difference between what was profane and what was sacred. For instance, they knew when they went to the cathedral and they took the Eucharist that the chalice of the priest was a sacred thing and the shovel of a farmer was a profane or non-sacred thing. But for the most part, these things all hung together. There were really no atheists. It was nearly impossible to be an atheist and live in a society where the dial was set at secular zero. I don't know if any of you know this person or have seen this statue. This is a statue you can find um, in Venice, and you should go to Venice, just not now because you'll die of the coronavirus. But, um, well, that's kind of a funny joke in a very terrible time. Um, but if you go to Venice and you walk the streets and you go down one of the canals, you can find this statue. And this is a statue of a man named Paulo Sarpi. Now, Paulo Sarpi is famous for many things. But one of the things he's famous for is being Galileo's good friend. So now that gives you a sense of we're talking early 16th century. And if you see the statue, you'll see Paulo Sarpi. Underneath it, you'll see a plaque that says Paulo Sarpi. It will say the date of when he was born and when he died. And then there'll be a quote in Italian. And if you can grab some Italian person next to you and say, can you translate that for me? The quote will say, Paulo Sarpi, 16th century thinker. And it will say the quote under, Paulo Sarpi, the only unbeliever of his generation. Now that's a pretty profound thing, to be the only unbeliever of your generation. You get a statue if you were the only unbeliever. 
I was thinking we get a statue for every unbeliever in Washington, D.C. You won't be able to get on the streets. There'd be so many statues. But this gives you a sense of what it's like to live in a secular material world. That it's nearly impossible not to believe. Belief and life just are one whole cloth, and they just work together. It's very hard, again, for us to get our imaginations around what it would be like to live in such a world. And there's only one real thought experiment we have from pop culture that tries to imagine what it would be like now to live in a secular zero world. And that's this very haunting show called The Handmaid's Tale. Has anyone seen The Handmaid's Tale? It's a very interesting, very frightening show. You will uh, not sleep if you, if you watch this show. What's basically happened in the show is that America has fallen. It's a good dystopian um, piece of uh, pop culture. And America has fallen. A very conservative religious group has taken over. And they've imposed, for the most part, secular zeroism, where faith and life are all one whole cloth. So how you dress perpetuates belief, the way you talk. In many ways, you can think about how the liturgy itself doesn't just get locked in the place of worship. The liturgy is everywhere in society. So if you've seen the show, you'll know that they go to the grocery store and the people say, under his eye, may the Lord open, that they're always reiterating these points. Now, I talk to a lot of denominational officials across the church who are very, very nervous about young people leaving the church. And almost, well, none of them have ever, has ever said to me, you know what we really need to do? We just need to get back to the Handmaid's Tale. I mean, if we could just get to the Handmaid's Tale, everything would be okay. And the truth of the matter is, it would be, if we think about faith formation in the sense that the whole society forms faith within this. But it's a frightening thought. It's a frightening thought for the woman who wrote these books that became this TV show. Um, the woman's a Canadian writer named uh, Margaret Atwood, and she's absolutely frightened of the thought of a secular zero world coming back um, into our modern, our modern world. Um, and she, if, you, if you've seen the show, you know that America doesn't even exist anymore. America, well, it kind of exists. It exists as a little enclave inside Toronto. And she's a Canadian writer, so I just feel like it's the ultimate of Canadian um, uh, fantasy that America doesn't exist. It exists in Toronto. Um, is there any Canadians in the room? Yeah, a few, yeah. It's the ultimate Canadian fantasy, isn't it? That America no longer exists. It just exists in Toronto. But she's frightened of this. She thinks it's an awful thought. And she does think it's an awful thought because you do need three things that we just don't really have as a society anymore. That you need to have a sense of the world being a very enchanted place. That uh, demons and devils are around every corner and that they could get you. You have to have a sense that things themselves can be charged with a holy force. So relics and things like that. And you have to have a sense that the self is porous. That things can get inside of it. Uh, that you could get your six-year-old could easily, your eight-year-old could easily be taken over by a demon or a devil. And we tend not to have that kind of imagination. So there was a great book written a few years ago by a historian named Keith Thomas. He wrote this book called Religion and the Decline of Magic. And he's showing just how different in medieval uh, England it was than our day today. And he was saying that around the 13th century in England, there was a huge controversy in the church. And the controversy was that people were taking the Eucharist, they were taking communion, and they discovered that it was being put on their tongue, and then they were leaving the cathedral without swallowing the host. They were putting it on their tongue, and then they were holding it in their mouth, and they were leaving the cathedral, taking it out, and feeding it to their sick pigs, and putting it in their fields so they would get a better crop yield, because their imagination was, it was magic. It was a magical thing. 
So this made Bishop and Priest very uncomfortable. So they gather in a conference like this and figure, they try to figure out what do we do about this. And the greatest technological breakthrough they could think about was, well, just make people stick off their tongues. So you can see this sometimes still today in movies. If you watch like Irish gangster movies or Italian gangster movies, where there's usually some murder scene while someone's taking the Eucharist. But you'll see that there's, they put, the priest puts it on a person's tongue, and what do they do? Always a great way to make sure people swallow it. You have to stick out your tongue and show the priest that you've actually swallowed it, like you're a six-year-old with a sore throat um, at the doctor's office. Uh, but the idea was that people saw this thing as magical, as deeply magical. So they ramped up the fear of this and let people know that if you don't swallow the host, you will bring condemnation and hell onto yourself. And for about 100 years, that rhetoric uh, was risen, and people got, became incredibly frightened, to the point that it was church law by the 15th century that you had to take communion twice a year. And most common people took communion twice a year because they were absolutely frightened of it. They thought, I'm a sinful being. If I take this holy thing into me, it could tear me apart. But the alternative was you could burn in hell forever. It would be kind of similar today if one of you at your table said to someone, hey, I just want to let you know that tomorrow I have to have my appendix out, and I just want you guys to know that I love having surgery. It's so meaningful to me. I mean, the thought of going under an anesthesia, it's just so meaningful. And then someone cuts me open and takes something out of my body. It's just so, oh, it's just so spiritually uplifting to me. If you said that, the people around your table would think you were out of your mind, that you were crazy. And it's a similar kind of sense of what people in the 15th century thought about taking communion. It was frightening. It was taking something holy into your sinful being. It could tear you apart. But just like you'll have your appendix out because the pain of having the surgery is better than the alternative, which is it exploding and you dying, so people thought the same way when they took the Eucharist. Now my son, who is 15, and I just have to tell you, he's a lovely, lovely boy. I would die for this kid. 15, but he is a major pain. You know what, right now. He is so sure that he is smarter than us. We have never said anything that makes any sense to this boy. He's a good kid, but you can pray for me. And please pray for me. So my, uh, we're, we're in a small church, uh, and we usually take, when we take communion, we take it in a circle together. And you actually give the elements to each other. So the words of institution are given over the elements, and they go around, and the bread goes around, and the wine goes around. It's very beautiful. You take it, and you say to the person next to them by name, the body of Christ broken for you, and then the wine comes. Well, the bread is going around the circle. My 15-year-old son is next to me. And you need to know my 15-year-old son has a deep moral aversion towards anything gluten-free. He thinks it's terrible. And that's because his mother is gluten-free. So that's just me. It cannot be trusted. So the bread is coming around the circle, and you know how this is going to go. The bread is coming around the circle, and he whispers to me. He says, hey, is that bread gluten-free? The Holy Communion bread, is that bread gluten-free? And I know this is going to be a problem, so I say, without really looking at him, say, yeah, yeah, it is. And he turns to me, and he says, well, I'm out. And he turns around and walks out of the sanctuary. Now, I have to confess to you all that it took everything in me to not tackle the boy and beat him in front of the whole church at that time. But think of that just stark difference of people in the 15th century going to take the Eucharist shaking on what it could do to them to my 15-year-old son being like, eh, gluten-free is stupid. I'm out. It's a very radical different sense 
he doesn't have the sense that the world is his chancellor, as much as maybe I'd like him to. That things that the communion bread itself could be filled with the divine chorus, or that he's chorus is something to get inside of him. We just tend not to have this imagination. So why are young people leaving the church? They're surely not leaving the church because we're in a secular zero world. But that moves us forward, and we could, I think, we start entering more into something that makes a little bit more sense to our time, where we enter into what we might call secular one. Now, secular one, we start to, to see a divide here between the public and the private. I mean, one of the ways to think about this is the city we're in right now is a world, is a city really built on a secular one imagination, where the public institutions are completely disconnected from any sense of faith or belief. They are actually cordoned off from belief. Public and private, there's a divide between them. And this does hold on with us. I mean, we tend to think that there are four things at a dinner party you probably shouldn't talk about. Like, you should talk about, it's impolite to talk about sex at a dinner party. Makes sense. Impolite to talk about money at a dinner party. It's impolite um, to talk about politics at a dinner party. Though that seems harder and harder in a 24-hour news cycle. But you're not really supposed to talk about politics at a dinner party. And of course, the fourth thing you're not supposed to talk about at a dinner party is religion. You're not supposed to talk about religion. Why? Because those are all private things. Those are all things you privately make decisions on. They're your own private um, desires. They're your own private commitments. They're not really for public knowledge even. And so we start to see a world where we start to divide these very realities, where there's a divide between what is public and what is private. And in place of enchantment, things being um, filled with a holy force and uh, a poor itself, we get two new things. We get a shift into wills being really important. How you will something. So now it's not that this thing, this relic, holds a holy, holy force, but do you willfully consent that this is meaningful? Will you willfully decide that in your own private life you'll commit to this religious group or you'll believe these things? That it becomes a more individual willed thing. So we have a huge shift in this. Now I want to show you a video clip that maybe illustrates this. And this comes from um, the PBS NewsHour. And they were interviewing a woman who runs the, the Dean of the American Episcopal Church, I think, or something, in Paris. And she's talking about um, the, the pain of what happened after Notre Dame just months ago set, was set on fire. And listen to how she talks about the relic. We start to see this transition um, from things being filled with the divine force to wills. It's brought out in all of us how much we care, not just about the building, which is gorgeous and historic, but about what it stands for. Paris, France, Europe, the world, tradition, Christian faith at its finest. Christian faith that endures. The Dean is grateful that so many relics survive. The relics are important whether or not it really was Jesus' crown of thorns, for instance. Who knows? What's important is that it was a focus of faith a focus of people's prayers for hundreds of years. So the things themselves are not so important as what they stand for, what they mean to people, the faith they evoke. At present, this is such. All right, so you hear it, right? I mean, and I actually probably intellectually may very well agree with her, but it's a major difference where she says, well, the relics, um, the significance of the relics aren't in the thingness of the relics themselves. What's the power of the relics is that people willfully consented that those things meant something to them. They willed to pray with those things or for those things to have meaning. 
there's a huge shift into wills being really significant. The other point here is then we have a transition from we no longer live in a cosmos to we live in a universe. And what I mean by that is that we have this kind of sense that the universe itself, the natural world itself, doesn't speak to us. I mean, you all remember this um, that happened a few uh, a few years ago now, uh, almost, yeah, a couple, two years ago, uh, you can see that in the corner, January 31st, 2018. Remember this? This was the super red um, moon, the, the, the eclipse that happened. You all remember it because all the young people at your schools were freaking out, right? Your, your whole schedule was filled because parents kept calling and saying, will there be school tomorrow? Because there's going to be a super red blood moon, and we don't know what this means. What is God trying to tell us? You remember that, right? Your, your schedule was booked. Of course not. No one cared. No one thought anything. And probably maybe your science teacher was out there explaining the laws that brought this thing. But if you were to go back to a secular zero world, the idea that this cosmological phenomenon was going to happen meant something. There was a message in it. God was trying to direct us. God was trying to tell us something. But we no longer live in that kind of world. We know what this is, we think. This is just, I mean, Newton's laws tell us exactly what this is. And we, could, we actually know when the next one's going to occur. These are just mathematical equations. So the universe itself doesn't speak to us anymore. If our, we're going to have any religious significance, again, it's going to be in our own minds, in our own heads. Will we will to do this? So this becomes very important. And it becomes very important when we think about younger generations of people because we start to think that they have to be loyal to something. They have to willfully decide to enact with their lives to believe something. And they have the choice. Will they believe this or will they not? And this really does become the time of the denomination. The denomination is a construction, uh, a religious construction for a secular um, one world. And it really does, we do know that any of our denominations need the next generation of people to willfully decide to enact their lives as Baptists, to willfully enact their lives as Methodists. And if they don't, within one generation, the denomination will be done. If the next generation does not willfully decide to be Baptists, there will be no Baptists in the world. So it becomes very important um, for denominations particularly to help the next generation enact, decide, see what it would be like, make a decision to believe this thing or commit their lives and be loyal to this structure. So every denomination has some kind of youth gathering or a big kind of youth event. And in the, in the church that I tend to serve the most, the Lutheran church, there's a big one. And it's called the Youth Gathering. It's every three years. The denomination spends about $3 million on their budget to prepare for this big youth gathering where they'll get 30,000 young people in some kind of dome event. They'll hear speakers, and it will be a big deal. And local congregations will raise a bunch of money to get their young people to this thing. So I was at one a few years ago, and, um, and the denomination knows it's worth $3 million because if these young people do not see themselves as Lutherans in one generation, there will be no Lutheran church. And so they pour all this money into it. So I was at one. I was walking in front of two high school girls, two high, excuse me, two high school girls walking in front of me, and they were walking, and they were good friends, and they were having a good time. It was like day three of the conference. They were in the glow of how important it was. They were having such a great time. It was really meaningful to them, and they were just joking around with each other, and one of them did the thing where you kick your friend without them really knowing it. You know, you kind of do that and kick them, and so she kicked her, and she knew that she, her friend had kicked her, and she looked at her, and they kind of played this up, and she looked at her friend and goes, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just they were having fun with each other. And then she looks there and she goes, I can't believe you just kicked me. 
That is such an un-Lutheran thing to do. And I thought to myself, un-Lutheran? An un-Lutheran thing to do? That's an un-Lutheran? She didn't just say that's an unethical thing to do, or that's an un-Christian thing to do. She said that's an un-Lutheran thing to do. I thought to myself, if she would have turned to her, put her arm around her, and said, hey, I just want to tell you, I know we're hearing all this stuff, but you really are justified by your works, not by grace, that would have been a very un-Lutheran thing to do. But she says to her, when she kicks her, that's an un-Lutheran thing to do. And I realized the denomination got exactly what they paid for. That what this young person came out of this big event thinking, imagining, at least for this weekend, she was imagining herself as a Lutheran. She was thinking about herself in the world through this denominational affiliation. So at least for this one weekend, it worked for them, and I guess was worth $3 million. Um, but this becomes the drive here. And so here's the deal, is that when we enter into a secular one world, it is possible now, the conditions are set for young people to leave the church. Now if we think of this historically, most don't. Because they're still forming their identity in larger collective groups, in larger communities, so most don't. But the conditions are set now for them to possibly leave. But as the way identity gets constructed starts to shift away from larger collectives and larger communities, then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a certain crisis. And this is where we are today, when we find ourselves in a crisis. And there's two ways we can read this crisis. One way, and to be quite honest, the most popular way or the way that most kind of books and faith formation programs have started to think about this problem is they've thought about it as a secular two issue. So if we define secular one as a divide between public and private, what we could define secular two as is fewer and fewer people going to church. That secular two is fewer and fewer people going to church. So this really is a kind of doubling down on loyalty. And most of the faith formation stuff you hear in youth ministry or you're directed towards students in your schools is always kind of driven by how can we keep young people in the church? How do we keep them? How do we retain them? How do we bring them in? But then how do we retain them? It tends to see the problem as a secular two issue. So it is really doubling down on this issue of loyalty. And it starts to see a, a real crisis or a tension between what we might call religious spaces and a-religious spaces. How do we get young people to be more committed to religious spaces than a-religious spaces? You'll hear this with youth pastors all the time where they'll say, well, if our 14, 15 junior, senior um, students will spend you know, 13 hours a week at their sports or be up at 5 a.m. for uh, a swim meet or a swim practice, why won't they read their Bible in the same way? Or why won't they come to youth group? There starts to be this kind of sense of how can we gain more space for the religious versus the a-religious. Now, how do you win that space? Usually in a secular two frame of mind, the way you win that space is with resources. And so if we can just get more resources, the resources is what will keep young people present. There's a really interesting German um, sociologist and philosopher right now uh, that very few people are reading in the United States. It's a very interesting guy named Hartmut Rosa. And what Rosa is saying that it's like to be living in a late modern age is what late modernity actually is. It's a continuing speeding up of our lives. That our lives just keep going faster. That our lives just keep going faster because of technology, because of just social change. feels like it's going so fast, but then the pace of our lives just keeps speeding up. And he says when we enter into this acceleration of our lives, we become people who become quite obsessed with resources. 
we just feel like we don't have a lot of time, so resources help us cope with losing time. And it's really amazing that we think to retain young people, what we need is resources. Or we think that young people themselves become resources. So we think if our church only had a really cool youth room, young people would stay. If our church only had a really cool youth pastor with better gel hair, then they would stick around. Or we think um, our church will only survive if we have young people in it. So young people themselves become the resource that potentially keeps the church going. Uh, it's, there's a book by Kendra Creasy Dean called Almost Christians. And in the introduction to it, she has this very sobering statement where she says, you know, I've been thinking about youth ministry and serving churches and, and uh, youth ministries for the last 30 years. And she says, over my 30 years, we have never poured more resources into youth ministry than we have in these last three decades, and yet it appears things have never been worse. That's quite sobering. But it should also tell us that resources are not the way to solve this issue. And I think part of the, the big problem is, is that secular too is not our fundamental issue. Our fundamental issue is not that fewer and fewer people, fewer and fewer young people are going to church. It seems like if we were to answer the question, why are young people leaving the church? We would say something like, it's secular too. The church just hasn't found a way to keep them, to have them stick around. But I don't think we're dealing with a secular too. Rather, I think where we're at or why young people are leaving is because of what we would call secular three. Now, what is secular three? So if secular two is that fewer and fewer people are going to church, secular three is something broader and deeper and maybe more endemic. And secular three is that all belief becomes contested. Or another way to say it is all belief becomes fragilized. That we live in an age where any form of belief becomes fragilized. Whether you are a believer or not, uh, not a believer, that belief itself becomes, and even not belief, becomes fragilized. We live in a time where it's nearly impossible to not have your belief become fragilized. Now this works in two directions, and there's a positive charge and a negative charge to this. And I don't want you to think of that pejoratively, like it's good or bad, but just think of it like a battery. It has a, a plus and a minus. And the, pl and, the, and the plus to this is that in, in a secular three age, meaning becomes really important. People are on a search to find meaning. Young people are looking for meaning. The negative element to it is that an idea of transcendence or that there's a personal God who speaks in the world becomes more and more unbelievable. And so Charles Taylor, who is a Canadian philosopher who I'm drawing on for a lot of these thoughts, says that this fragilization actually works both ways. It's a two-way fragilization. And what he means is that if you are a believer and someone who's very committed to your beliefs, that we all, in this kind of secular three age, he believes, that we all find at some point our belief fragilized. Like you believe this, you go to church, you believe this, you were baptized at 11 or 12, you have been committed to this, you spend your time in, in the Christian community, you really deeply believe this, and yet sometimes you find yourselves and you find your belief fragilized. Sometimes you wonder, hmm, is this true? Or was this just the family I grew up in? I mean, if I would have been born in a family in India, would I believe this? Or you think, no, 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 this is true. I believe this. I really deeply, deeply believe this. And then you find yourself fragilized again, where you think, ugh, is religion really true? Does it really point to something true? Or is this just an evolutionary trick? 
I mean, is all religion is just kind of false pattern recognition, and that's all this is? Taylor's point is you can't really live in this kind of age and not at some point find yourself wondering that, that your belief becomes fragile. You wonder, can you be a smart person and believe that there's a transcendent God who speaks in the world? But what's really interesting about Taylor is he says that fragilization, like I said, works the other way as well. So you might be someone who lives in Brooklyn, a young adult, and you know that there's no personal God in the world. You know that religion is an all made up thing for people to cope with their anxiety. You know it. You're in a knitting group and you're in a band and you know there's no point to any of this. You just, you believe, your belief is that you don't believe. And you are solid in that. Except then you have your first child and you hold that baby for the first time and you feel overwhelmed with your unbelief becoming fragilized and you find yourself believing for a second. Or you have an experience where you just don't believe and your mother just dies. And you know what happens when people die. You're sure of it. I mean, religious, religion gives us all these made up fairy tales. But what happens when you die is it just goes dark. It's like a TV being turned off and that's it. That's what you believe. So you go to the wake of your mother, you sob as you think about her being gone, you reminisce with your siblings about how your mother used to play these fun games with you, and how she used to always play this, this Billy Joel song when you were a kid and dance around the kitchen, and you laugh about that, you cry about that, it's particularly sour because you know you'll never see your mother again, and then you go to bed that night, and you set your alarm for 6 a.m. the next morning, and you set it to Pandora just to pull a song and play it to wake you up. In the morning, it comes on, there's that Billy Joel song. And you find yourself fragilized in your unbelief, and you find yourself believing for a time. So Taylor's point is in this kind of secular free age, it's very hard to be someone who believes who doesn't find your belief fragilized. But it's also very hard to be someone who doesn't believe that doesn't find yourself at some time believing. So there's this dual kind of way of fragilization. But this has a big point for us and for you all who are leading and thinking about schools and thinking about Christian faith inside of schools, is we do kind of have a choice here. It's inside this kind of secular three age, or inside this kind of secular as we're talking about it, is we can think that our goal is to keep young people from the fragilization of belief. So we try to double down on secular too. Or we can see education itself as to lean into secular free, to wrestle with these big questions. So this is what Taylor says, he's a picture of this nice old man. He, he says, and one of the reasons why you have, I think that the only way forward is inside this secular free perspective is because of what he calls the imminent frame. And he says the imminent frame is a constructive social space that frames our lives entirely within a natural rather than a supernatural order. It is a circumscribed space of the, of the modern social imaginary that precludes transcendence. Now that's a mouthful. But what he's saying is, even if you are someone who deeply believes, one of the reasons your belief becomes fragilized is because we all inherit a certain frame of reference. And this frame of reference that we all get, whether you go to a Christian school or you don't, is the frame of reference you get is an imminent one. That we tend, when something happens, to assume natural material answers as opposed to supernatural if we were in a secular zero world, is something strange happened. Someone had an episode, or something happened with the technology. All of your minds would originally go to supernatural answers, not natural answers. But all of us are raised in this culture to assume more of an imminent frame. 
Now, this is a very wordy, philosophical phrase, so let me give you an example of this from a pop star. I don't know if you know the British pop star Lily Allen. Some of you look like you may be big fans. Uh, but Lily Allen has this, this song. Hopefully you can see this. You may not be able to see this well, so I'll read this to you. But Lily Allen has this song called The Fear, and in it she has this lyric. She says, life's more about film stars and less about mothers, but it doesn't matter because I'm packing plastic, and that's what makes my life so effing fantastic. Now, you should always be very wary to exegete pop stars' lyrics, so I'm not exactly sure what this means. I'm not sure what packing plastic means, but it probably means she has a credit card with a big credit limit on it, or more likely, she's had her breasts enhanced, and that becomes the measure of the good life for her, that becomes the measure of what makes her life so fantastic. But here comes the imminent friend. She says, I'm a weapon of massive consumption, it's not my fault, it's how I'm programmed to function. Now here it is, she says, now I'm not a saint, but I'm not a sinner. But now everything's cool as long as I'm getting thinner. Now I'm not a saint. I'm not a sinner. Now everything's cool as long as I'm getting thinner. This is the imminent frame. For most of human history, the majority of people really care. Am I a saint or am I a sinner? Am I bound for heaven? Am I bound for hell? What does God think of me? Am I justified or am I not justified? And people would wake up in the middle of the night and wonder about that. The very father of Protestantism, Martin Luther, woke up in the middle of the night wondering, am I a saint or am I a sinner? What does God think of me? Having to go back to the book of Romans to find a way to make sense of whether he's a saint or he's a sinner. And, he, and this becomes part of the way we all think up until this British pop star. All right, we're not going to give her that much credit. But at least she highlights something, is that all of a sudden, at some point, she actually says saint or sinner. Those categories make no difference to me. I don't wake up in the middle of the night and wonder, oh, what does God think of me? Where am I bound eternally? But that doesn't mean she doesn't wake up in a cold sweat. She does. But her, when she wakes up in a cold sweat, she thinks, oh my gosh, swimsuit season's coming. What are people going to think about my body? So it becomes an imminent worry. It becomes a worry about a natural and material thing, not a spiritual thing. And we all inherit this kind of imminent frame. Now this is why I think we need to lean more into a secular three than a secular two perspective, however, is what Taylor says that in this sense of living in a secular three world where all belief becomes fragilized and even unbelief becomes fragilized is what happens if we all get crossed up. We all find ourselves with cross pressure. And so we, we find ourselves believing and then we think, oh, maybe this is just the family I was raised in. We find ourselves crossed up. Or we find ourselves unbelieving. There's, there's, there's no God, I mean, that's crazy to believe in there's a God. And then we have that experience with our mother um, at, the, at, at, uh, at, the, at, the, at the funeral, and we find ourselves crossed up. So Taylor says this, uh, he says, we can't help looking over our shoulders from time to time, uh, looking sideways, living our faith in a condition of doubt and uncertainty. That this is just the conditions that we bear. Or Lily Allen herself, we get these verses, um, I'm a weapon of massive consumption. It's not my fault. It's how I'm programmed to function. I'm not a saint. I'm not a sinner. But everything's cool as long as I'm getting thinner. Those are the verses. But then we get this chorus where she says, I don't know what's right or what's real anymore. I don't know how I'm meant to feel anymore. When do you think it'll all become clear? Because I'm being overtaken by the fear. So even she, in her kind of irreverent, in your face, gets crossed up and wonders, is there meaning here? Where is God? How do I make sense of my life? So there's both endemic doubt in this time, and there's really no way outside of that doubt. And if we retreat to secular two and try to 
cage kids, try to buffer them and try to package them in a way that they don't have to deal with doubt or deal with cross-pressure, it actually becomes counterproductive. But to take them into it, to wrestle with it, to think, to, to wonder, to mine the Christian tradition could be incredibly significant as they get crossed up. So let me end by telling you just two stories that maybe illustrate this difference between secular one um, and secular two. So a few years ago, I got a phone call uh, from a church, and the church said, hey, we have a, a middle school pastor, and things are not going well with this pastor, and we are thinking that we may need to move on from this pastor using all the kind of euphemisms of we may need to fire this person. And so uh, they said, you know, but we want some outside consultations and wonder if we should move on from this person. So we're wondering if you would come in and observe the uh, youth group night and decide if this person should be uh, fired and let go. Now when you get that kind of phone call, um, and it came from Southern California, it came from a church that was three blocks from the Pacific Ocean. And when you get that kind of phone call, however, your response should be, God bless you. I pray that your decisions and your discernment goes well, but I don't want to be part of anyone losing their job. That's what you should say. But these people called me, and I live in Minnesota, and they called me in February. And I found myself, I looked, I looked at the temperature, and it was minus three. And I looked at their temperature, and it was 85 and sunny. And I found myself saying, I can be there Tuesday night. <laughs> so I got on a plane, and I flew to Southern California, and the whole time I'm thinking, why am I doing this? Well, I get there, and they say, the first thing we want you to do is observe the Wednesday night, middle school night. And it was in a big kind of church gymnasium, maybe three-fourths the size of this room, and there were about 70, 80 middle schoolers in there, and I was just supposed to be a fly on the wall, and just to kind of see what was going on. Well, as the night started, it was pure chaos. There were a group of boys in the back literally running up the wall, like literally running up the wall, seeing how high they could get up the wall. There were girls huddled passing notes. Then those same boys who were running up the wall decided to start surfing on the back of their chairs, where they would get the back two legs of their chairs going and see how long they could balance on it. This wasn't like she's going to start in two minutes. This was while she was trying to lead a Bible study. This is why she was you know, leading them through things. Then the boys started kicking each other in the face, where one of the boys would stand like this, and they would kick and see how close they could get to each other's face. And then I was, I was sitting on the side thinking, oh yeah, she's, yeah, this isn't good. She, she's definitely getting fired. Except, about the last seven minutes of the time, she grabs a cordless mic and she says, now we're going to pray like we do. And this weird lull came over the group, and a young woman raised her hand, she looked like she was about eighth grade or something. They grabbed her the mic, she stood up, and she said in her very Southern California way, she said, um, like, um, so, like, um, I guess, like, I just, like, need prayer, because, like, I'm dealing with it again. Now, I had no idea what it was, but clearly the rest of the room did. She sat down, and an adult leader kind of tapped her on the shoulder and gave her a look of encouragement. Another boy raised his hand, they passed him the mic, and he prayed for her. Then another kid raised his hand, they passed him the mic, he stood up and said, hey, um, like, you may be, like, heard that my mom, and maybe her in church or whatever, that my mom's cancer might be back, and everyone in my family's really scared. And he sat down, another kid raised her hand, they passed her the mic, and she prayed for him. And so it went on for about seven minutes. Then the woman who was in charge, who I wasn't serving, grabbed the mic, prayed for the kids, and the boys immediately after she said amen, went back to kicking each other in the face. <laughs> 
the next morning they called me in and said, what should we do? You know, should we, and there's almost blood dripping from their teeth. Like, should we, you know, should we get rid of her? And I said, oh, no, I don't think so. I mean, she needs some help. She could really use some help with running this thing. But at another level, what more could you want? Here are these young people, in a very secular three kind of way, confessing the depth of their doubt and their fear, and bringing it before a God in fear and doubt that they still believe is transcendent and who can answer this question. Yes, she has not run a good youth group. In a secular two perspective, you look at it and think, oh, all these kids are going to leave. This isn't, this isn't working. She isn't organized enough. She doesn't seem cool enough. She's not going to be able to retain them. But at enough level, she was taking at least half this group, if not the whole group, deeply into the cross-pressure of asking the question, where is God in this group? In fear and in doubt, looking for meaning and looking for God to act in the midst of this. And I think we see this in the biblical text itself. One of my favorite biblical stories is the Mark 9 story. And especially how the Mark of the chapter nine of Mark just kind of fits together, and I love it because it feels like it should be a miniseries or something like an HBO miniseries, which I'd love to see someone pitch that to HBO. Uh, but it, it feels that way. Like we have this father, and it feels like everything this father has done, and we don't have a lot of information about this father and this boy, but we do know things have gone quite bad for this boy. That things have been quite difficult, and we don't know how long he's been trying to get his boy well, but it seems like it's been a while. And maybe, again, we don't know this, but maybe this father has taken this son to every specialist that he can think of, and none of them are working. Every healer, and it's not working. Maybe just the other day, the school said, I'm sorry, your behavioral problems with your son are so bad we cannot have him in school anymore. Maybe just the other day, he actually had a fit and hurt his sister, and now mom and dad can't even talk to each other. Well, this father, again, maybe, gets word that there's one more chance. There's one more healer in Galilee. So he gets this boy, we don't know this, but maybe he walks for days. Maybe this is his last best chance. And he thinks, this healer is out of my healthcare network, but we're willing to go out of network to see if this will work. No healthcare joke? Come on, people. Um, you need more coffee. Um, and so he walks, and maybe every step he thinks to himself, this time it's got to work. Well, he gets to where Jesus is supposed to be, and he says, I'm here to see Jesus. And it's kind of a tragic element, a hidden tragic element in the New Testament. And he says, hey, Jesus, I'm here to see Jesus. And they, the disciples say, oh, we're sorry. Jesus isn't here. Jesus is actually on vacation. And he is. He's taking his three best buddies, Peter, James, and John. They've loaded up a cooler of sodas and hot dogs and s'mores. And they've gone on a bromance mountain getaway. And they have. They've gone on this great bromance getaway. They're having a great time. Except then it starts getting really weird. And it starts becoming like a scene from an M. Night Shyamalan movie. It like becomes like the sixth sense where fog descends on the mountain and then they start seeing dead people. And there's Eliza and there's Moses and then Jesus is having a conversation with Elijah and Moses. And then Peter, you know Peter. Peter's the disciple with a mouth that's shaped like a foot. And Peter <laughs> interrupts the whole scene and says, uh, he, I mean, think about this. Jesus is talking to Elijah and Moses, and Peter says, excuse me, teacher, I don't mean to interrupt your conversation with these dead people, but I would like to, I would like to know, um, would you like me to build three shelters, one for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses? And in the market text, it says this. There's a parenthetical that says he did not know what he's saying. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but I think that means really stupid thing to say. I think that's what that's actually the translation of that is. So Peter says a stupid thing. We get a voice from heaven. 
And the voice from heaven says, this is my son, listen to him, and bam, it's over. And James and John are like holding their s'more sticks, like, whoa, this was really trippy. Well, down below, we have this father who says, I'm here to have my boy healed. And they say, well, Jesus isn't here, he's on vacation. Well, what's he supposed to do? Again, we don't know this, but maybe he walked for days. So he turns to the disciples and say, well, you know this Jesus, you, you know his, his methods, you do something. And one of the most tragic elements of the New Testament, one of the most explicit tragic elements of the New Testament, is they try, and it doesn't work. And all of us know there's nothing more painful than having to work yourself up with hope when you're up against the impossibility and then find that hope crash against the rocks of impossibility again. And that's where he is when Jesus walks back into the scene. There's chaos. It didn't work. The boy, um, the demon is still in the boy. And Jesus walks in. He has some harsh words to say to the disciples. But then he does something profound. He turns to the father and he says these words. He asks a question. He says, how long? How long has your boy been like this? Now, we miss the profundity of that statement because we live in a diagnostic culture. Uh, so we think this is a diagnostic question. This is a question somehow stuck in a secular two frame. Um, how long, in the sense of how can I fix this quickly? What's the resources that would fix this? We live in a diagnostic culture because the last time you went to the doctor and your elbow hurt, the doctor said, how long has your elbow felt that way? Or you had a rash on your ankle, the doctor said, how long has the rash been there? Or you took your computer into IT and the first question they ask you is, how long has it been since the operating system has booted up? We read that question as a diagnostic question, but it isn't a diagnostic question. I think it's the question that invites the Father to narrate his experience, to articulate it to Jesus, to talk about his own fragilization, to talk about how painful this is, about how hard it is, about how he's up against Dios in. And something happens in the midst of being able to articulate his own fragilization, his own doubts, his own fears, that he finds just enough just enough strength, just enough confidence to say, but teacher, but teacher, almost not looking from the ground, but teacher, if you are able. Teacher, if you are able. And Jesus interrupts him and says, if I am able, if I am able, I was just up on a mountain with Moses and Elijah. If I am able, all things are possible, he says, for those who believe. And then we get this beautiful articulation of New Testament faith that fits so beautifully in a secular three age where the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. In a secular three age, and maybe what you're doing as educators, especially when you think of formation of your students, is to help them lead into that articulation, I believe, help my unbelief. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please hit subscribe and follow our podcast. It's important that we continue these relevant conversations for Christian education.